1: Good afternoon and welcome. We spend a lot of time talking about whether the for-profit model in long-term care is the root of the problem and whether it should be abolished. We know that overall those homes have higher levels of death and disease and lower staffing levels and they have come under a lot of fire for paying shareholders Millions of dollars in dividends while collecting emergency pandemic funds from the government. Well, it turns out that many of us may be the beneficiaries of that money because pension funds around the world have invested more than $44 million in uh, Ontario's for-profit nursing homes, notably the big three companies, which are Extendicare and uh, Sienna and Chartwell. And the Toronto Star reported, they did a great article on this, by the way, uh, kudos to them, that at least two of these pension funds, including the Canada Pension Plan, have divested millions from these companies since the pandemic began, and they did that at a loss. The Rivera chain is wholly owned by the Public Sector Pension Investment Board, which is a fund for federal civil servants, RCMP, and reserved armed forces members. The union representing these public sector employees has called for the pension fund to completely divest well, we are going to check in on how that is going before we do that. Let me give out the numbers again so our audience can weigh in on these ethical questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 And now let's go to Chris Aylward, who is the National President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure, Libby. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so um, when did you first decide that you do not want your money invested in for-profit long-term care?
2: Well certainly I mean we we've been calling uh on the uh, on the federal government to uh to make sure that the uh especially Rivera as you said uh, it, it's 100% uh, owned uh by the public service uh, pension investment board which is a, a federal crown corporation uh, I might add uh we've been asking uh, for quite some time now uh to get out of uh you know to have our pensions not invested uh in in for profit long term care uh, just earlier this morning, uh, the, uh, the Center for, uh, International Corporate Tax Accountability Research, uh, put out a detailed analysis of Rivera's, uh, international operations. Uh, and it was quite stunning and, and deeply disappointing, uh, to learn that Rivera, uh, again, owned by the Public Sector, uh, Pension Investment Board, uh, is making use of offshore tax havens to avoid paying taxes around the world. So, Well, our members, the the, the members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, certainly don't want their pension to profit off the suffering of our seniors. And and we certainly don't want it associated with a corporation that is avoiding paying taxes that fund vital uh, public services. Well, Uh, it is also,
1: to be said, Rivera has uh, one of the worst records during the pandemic in some of their homes.
2: Oh, Absolutely. Uh, The largest break... uh, the, the the outbreak the largest outbreak in uh, Tro- uh, Ontario happened right in Toronto at a Rivera uh, facility uh, and as you said I mean it's it's you know right across the country uh, Manitoba's largest outbreak uh, happened at a Rivera facility uh, in Winnipeg uh, and and so I mean you know it's it's very obvious and and there's been many reports uh, that have been published around this that for profit uh, long-term care facilities simply do not, uh, you know, add up to uh, pr- uh, public-run uh, and publicly-owned long-term care homes. Uh, and that's what we're asking this government to do. Uh, the Prime Minister has been is on the record of saying that everything is on the table to fix long-term care in this country. Uh, but yet months have passed, and his government has made only a meager promise to develop national standards for long-term care. So again, uh, you know, they're ignoring widespread calls to expand our universal health care system to include care for seniors.
1: Well, let's uh, and that's,
2: that's what we're asking for.
1: Well, let, let's get to this pension fund issue. So uh, it's a crown corporation. Uh, presumably, they work for you with your money. So how have they responded to the request to divest?
2: Uh, almost uh, very, very silently, uh, I, I would say. Uh, they have not come forward at all. We, we, we've asked how much is the investment worth. Uh, they haven't come forward with that. We believe, through our research, that the uh, the investment uh, in Rivera is, is valued at, at approximately $3 billion. Uh, and certainly, as I said, we, we do not want our pension fund uh, to be profiting off the uh, you know terrible terrible care that that Rivera has been providing uh, to uh, to its residents. Uh, so it, uh, it's, sorry, it's under under the acceptable. law,
1: they're not answerable to you, or are they?
2: No, they do report. The investment board does report to uh, the uh, pension advisory committee uh, on, on an annual basis. Uh, but as I've said they're 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 not very uh forthwith with any any kind of uh, detailed information that we've been uh, we've been asking for
1: that's uh that that's interesting now there is one issue uh, and it comes up with all ethical investing, and that is fiduciary responsibility. So their professional responsibility is basically to make as much money as they can for you. So do you see uh, that as the source of the conflict? Because those dividends that, that these homes offer, they are juicy.
2: Well, they, they very well may be juicy, but as you said, they have a terrible record, for sure. And uh, what we've been saying is that our members' pensions uh, must be managed, of course, in the interest of our mem- uh, members, and that's what you're alluding to, but also in a manner that's consistent with public interest. And, and the Public Service Pensions Plan sole ownership of Rivera, which is the second largest network uh, of for-profit long-term care homes in Canada, is just not consistent with, uh, with the public interest uh, at all. Uh, it's, it's profiting from Canada's broken uh, system of senior care. Again, putting profits ahead of care, which is, uh, you know, especially during uh, this time, is, is very unethical and very immoral, uh, from our perspective.
1: So what uh, are you planning to do going forward? Is it just a matter of, of putting it out there in the public or do you want rules changed so that decisions like that can be uh, more left to you rather than them?
2: Well, certainly what we're asking for is the investment board to be a little bit more, I guess, uh, forthcoming with with this type of information that we have been uh, requesting. Uh, and again, we're, we're certainly calling uh... on the liberal government uh... to show today you know which which would be a a first step towards a national publicly funded and accountable long-term care uh... system uh... and that that's what we're asking And and it's you know i i'm not saying that it can be done overnight but it's fairly simple and tangible uh... that that they can do as i said right now and make it clear that uh... this government does not uh... support for-profit health care uh it can facilitate the transfer of Rivera to public hands, uh, so that it's owned and operated as a uh, public not-for-profit entity.
1: Okay, well, it's actually, there's provinces, there's uh, federal responsibilities. Um, uh, You know, the hope is that if nothing else, the horrible, horrible devastation in long-term care will at least lead to some reform after, but there's a lot that has to happen. In the meantime, uh, Chris Aylward, is there anything you'd like to leave us with?
2: No, again, I mean, I, I, I would uh, uh, suggest that your uh, listeners have a look at this report that was just released this morning uh, from the Center of uh, International Corporate Tax Accountability Research, uh, because there, there's some very uh, eye-opening uh, details uh, in that report uh, w- which pertain to Rivera specifically, but certainly uh, we, we believe that you know, uh, putting our seniors first uh, has to be a priority uh certainly in the current context and we're asking the government the uh, the Trudeau liberal government to start facilitating those discussions with the provinces uh to make sure that the uh the you know these for profit long term care homes are, are are turned over to uh to to the public uh, uh so that they can be run publicly and all they've got to do is look at the uh, the difference between uh, the cases of COVID and the number of deaths that are happening uh, in for-profit long-term care homes versus publicly run uh, long-term care homes across the country.
1: Okay. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. My B- pleasure.
1: Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we are going to take... A quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the bullying of doctors, epidemiologists, public health officials that has uh, seems like it's, it's another uh, pandemic during the pandemic. We're going to be talking about that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. The pandemic has turned the spotlight on medical and public health professionals as we turn to them for their expertise and advice. But that has led to a very disturbing phenomenon, and that is bullying and harassment, both online and elsewhere. We've seen it from those who oppose the kind of strong medicine many have been advising. And just Lately, we're seri- seeing what look to be reprisals against some who criticize the Ford government's handling of the crisis. Now, our listeners will have heard the whole controversy over Dr. David Fisman because he did consulting work for a union. Now, I first became aware of this because of a late night statement from the premier's office, from the premier's office calling him out. And then uh, by the next day, he was defended by the Deputy Prime Minister, Chrystia Freeland. Uh, then we see Dr. Brooks Follis uh, of the Trillium Health Centre. He claimed that his contract was terminated because he criticized the government. His colleagues support him. The Canadian Medical Association has issued a statement saying this has to stop, that there is online harassment Bullying. I know that there are doctors who have uh, left Twitter because of the kind of reactions they get. Uh, let me give you the numbers. What do you think of that? It, it's, it's beyond the pale. I think four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll-free 866 740 4740 And now I'd like to welcome Dr. David Jacobs, chair of the Ontario Specialist Association and co-founder of the Ontario Coalition of Doctors and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, and Dr. Raywat Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Let us begin with Dr. Dionanda. Now, uh, you were uh, the victim, the brunt of some of this. You left Twitter, I understand.
3: I I did briefly, and I came back. Uh, It's not unusual to get a fair amount of hate mail these days. Um, And it's it's targeted at the lowest hanging demographic fruit. So in my case, I'm a non-white person with a non-Caucasian name who's an immigrant. So they go after my skin color, my name, uh, go back to where you came from, that kind of thing. A lot of colleagues, they go for their gender, you know, also their racial identity. It's un- previously, I was sympathetic. I feel like these are people who have lost a lot. You know, their businesses are in shambles. They're upset that they're wearing masks, and they're looking at someone to attack. I'm sympathetic, but only to a limit. Uh, and so they see, like, the, the talking head on TV and assume that it's my fault that these things are happening and they, um, they direct their anger towards the expert making commentary and not towards the policymakers or towards the disease itself. So there's a lot going on here, and I don't really know how to process
1: it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it seems to be part of, you know, what's going on overall. First of all, I think social media emboldens people because if they had to look you in the eye and say some of those things, they probably wouldn't. And, you know, when you see what happens south of the border and the kind of intimidation and, and intimidation, you know, that female politicians get, it, it, it all seems to kind of fit. Do- Dr. Jacobs, uh, what have you been seeing? Well, I,
4: I think that um, social media is a very ugly place, and it has been for a uh, for great many years. People feel protected by their anonymity. Uh, to attack others, uh, and there's another kind of nasty little bit of business with social media that I think we have to acknowledge, which is there are people kind of form teams, they form gangs, and they'll gang up on you. Uh, so whether you be uh, pushing an idea that is from the left or from the right, uh, you'll find that uh, people will kind of move in packs. And sometimes these people who are attacking you are other professionals and it's, it's kind of hard to see. And I think that we all need to take a step back and before we put something out online, we have to ask ourselves, would we say this in a professional uh, capacity and should we, and would we say this to somebody's face? Um, And and I think that's, uh, you know, we have to reflect before we uh, go out and say things online.
1: Well, exactly. I I think a lot of people have learned that lesson. You can end up losing your job because of what you say online. But, you know, uh, Dr. Dionandon, we've also seen that that good can come of it. Yesterday, I talked to some doctors participating, you know, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, and they went from a few of them to 800 of them in a couple of days because of social media.
3: Absolutely. These tools have both sides to them, the good and the bad. And even when I receive uh, some hate mail, it's followed up with scores of supportive messages. So it does reveal the good side of society as well. In fact, my takeaway message from my experience of dealing with the ugly side of society is I have discovered a magical side of society that is actually quite nice and good. And I think most gays are, are quite good. But to go back to this, the cowardly aspects of this, I think that's really on target here. There's an no old adage if you give a man a face, a mask, he will show you his true face. And so much of this can be uh, addressed, I think, if the anonymity has been removed. But we also need to distinguish between the organizational bullying, the disincentivization of speaking out, versus the personal attacks. I think what we're seeing is with you know, um, the firing of Dr. Fowles and so forth is that's an organizational thing. That's an administrative thing that I think speaks to a dysfunction in the way that our administrations run. And the other side of this, the name-calling, that is a, a personal thing that speaks to the fiber of society that has somehow become disentangled with our lack of overall civility. I,
1: I agree with you. I'm I'm hoping to tackle both sides of, of uh, that equation. Excuse me. <clears throat> I want to give the numbers out again. I want to hear from our listeners. I mean... Uh, I talk to doctors on this show probably at least every other day and most of the calls we get are respectful with questions but you know some of the things that I see being directed at them is 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 frankly disheartening and and uh, you guys are not monolithic uh, you have opinions and especially for those from an academic background, you know, the, the right to express your opinions is protected. And, you know, it, it's just seems so, uh, I don't know, f- weird and, and ugly to see people, you know, contesting that. It's uh, 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866- 744-740. We're talking about online bullying and harassment of doctors from people who don't like what they have to say. And we're also talking about what seems to be uh reprisals for criticizing the government's move. Now, uh, Ray just brought this up. There's uh the issue of Dr. Brooks Follis, who was uh, an interim chief of critical care, and his contract was terminated. And he said that in the conversation he had, um, it, his criticism of the government was brought up. Now, the hospital refutes this and says the government didn't intervene in any way, and you know that's probably true. But I've talked to people who who serve on some of those panels who are friends of mine, and they say very, very plainly, this is just a private conversation. There is no percentage in criticizing the government. And I can certainly see that without having to be told anything, the hospital said, you know, this isn't going to do us any good. Um, it, it, what What do you think of that, Dr. Jacobs?
4: Well, I think that... Um there's a lot of complexity when you're dealing with uh, an executive who's been fired, um, and uh, that's a human resources issue. So uh, without having, I, I don't work at the hospital, I don't know this individual, so I can't speak to that particular example uh, simply because I don't have the facts. Now, in terms of government reaching out and trying to hurt individual people, I think that that's highly, highly Unlikely. It actually did. Uh, you know, having said that, it did happen to me once. Uh, as the uh, vice president of the OAR at the time, I had criticized the government uh, of the day, which was Kathleen Wynne's government, for not uh, providing adequate resources for digital mammography. Um, I received a rather nasty letter from the Minister of Health at the time, uh, Deb Matthews, uh, which was threatening and uh, cc'd to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario saying that I was spreading mistruths. Well, everything that I said was factual, uh, and it was done for the greater good of the public, and yet I was directly attacked by the Minister of Health and uh, referred to the college or threatened referral to the college for that. So there is political reprisal. Do I think that there was in this case? I just can't say. I just can't say uh, because I don't know enough about the situation.
1: Uh, right. Uh, and uh, Dr. Dionandon, there was this whole uh, brouhaha with with. Dr. David Fissman, uh, and again, I was surprised at, uh, I don't know, 11 or midnight the other night to get something from the Premier's office saying, we are really concerned, uh, because he's taken money from the Elementary Teachers Federation. It, it just seemed like they were, you know, it's true, um, he never hid it. He didn't disclose it, but it, you know, it, it, the disclosures have to be done at a certain, point in time. Uh, I just thought uh, that, you know, they were trying to uh, sort of point the fingers at people who disagreed with them and quite vociferously and quite regularly. It just seemed, I don't know, it seemed a little strange.
3: It, it does seem strange. And again, I don't know what the politicians are up to. I, I can't say that uh, they, they were gunning for Dr. Fistman or anybody else. I do know this that uh, the attacks that I endure and my colleagues endure all seem to come from a political quarter that has some things in common. I won't say what those things are, they're pretty obvious. If you look south of the border, we see you know, the Trump uh, disciples attacking people, and that's not at the orders of Mr. Trump, but he doesn't he doesn't dissociate himself from the outcome. So I think it's... it's uh, some might upon, say it is at the orders of Mr. Trump, well, but yeah. anyway... <laughs> So so I think it's incumbent upon political leaders to openly state that this is not to be tolerated, even if they're benefiting from it. So I would like it if our political leaders would say, you know, stop picking on our public health leaders, either as individuals or as organizations. That simple affirmation of our rights and dignities, I think, would help, at least a little bit. Now, uh, my biggest concern, actually, is not for me necessarily, but for you know, the next generation of physicians and scientists who want to be public engaged, but now are quite afraid to do so. Many of my graduate students originally, when this pandemic started, were asking me how they could help. And I recommended, you know, go on social media, answer questions, help people understand the science. And they started, and they were attacked as well, and they quickly retreated. So I don't know what this means for the future of public engagement of intellectuals. I I have to agree with that. And
4: I I think that the people who are uh, at at greatest risk are the public themselves because we don't go on social media and radio shows because it, it benefits us in any significant way. We do this because it's important for the public to understand the science behind the pandemic. If we can explain it in a way that people can digest it then they are more likely to follow the public health guidelines that are there to protect them. Uh, they're more likely to take vaccines. They're more likely to take, uh, you know, whatever medications uh, are developed uh, at any given time. So this is to help the public. And, uh, you know, we, we do take a lot of heat for doing it. And I think that what we need to do is... Um, it, it's good to talk about it, but I think it's also good to talk about it amongst ourselves, too. We've got to be a lot more respectful, even amongst professionals, uh, when discuss, discussing issues, whether it be between politicians or between physicians. We, ha- we have to uh, create a, a more respectful environment online, and hopefully the rest of the population will follow.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a call from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis.
5: Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. And you touched on the William Osler situation, which I was going to comment on. But just building on what's already been said, I'm particularly troubled uh, by what happened there. I I live in the community. I have contributed to the hospital. I one time was part of the leadership team at one of those facilities there. And uh, I'm, I'm appalled at what seems to have happened there. Now, we don't have all of the facts. And so it, the fact that there is some reference to government involvement in what happened there uh, i 'm concerned that when we start muzzling scientists and doctors and politicians be, are become the dominant spokesperson for the critical matters of public health I, I think we 're down a very, very slippery slope
1: um, and uh,
5: that that's my comment on that: I'm, I'm very concerned about what's going on.
1: And uh, are you going to uh, withhold donations or anything like that?
5: Well, I'm going I'm to send a letter off <laughs> and say, "What's going on? Uh, you know, this is this is not right."
1: Yeah, it's but, it's. But, the but whole- I don't
5: know. You know, again, I I don't have all the facts, but you know, looking at the reporting I've seen, um, there's. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Something has happened that has caused the leadership team there to take that action. Uh, Notwithstanding the support that he had from his colleagues and the fact they've, all, they've already said as a position as a leader, he had exemplary performance. So what else could it be?
1: Yeah, well, Dennis, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay, uh people again, the numbers for 163600740 toll free one eight six six 740 4740 and I'm curious about this whole business about uh you have doctors at these various tables and frankly for a lot of them I'm sure that being at the table or if they're representing their institution at the table is it's it's good for their careers. And uh, just this idea that, you know, um, criticizing the government is not necessarily that good for their careers. I'm sure that the province didn't intervene in this. Well, I can't say I'm sure, but but it was probably the hospital administration itself saying, hey, um, this may not be doing us any good. Uh Dr. Jacobs, do you have a view about all this uh, collaboration uh, between the province and doctors? Uh, Is that or can it be problematic?
4: Well, I, I think that what we have to think about is what is the purpose of these tables, of these science tables? And I think if the science tables are just filled with people who agree with each other, then they're not very productive. You do need to have voices at the table who are in Disagreement. You do have to have people who don't, uh, who who, uh, who challenge your ideas, uh, and in challenging your ideas, you'll end up with a better product at the end. Now there. So, and I think that when you look at what the Ford government has, how they've handled this, um, it's a little tricky for them. When we go through uh, our panel of research ethics program, and we all do this as researchers, we all have to take this course, uh, one of the sections that we go over is conflict of interest. And what we talk about with conflict of interest is that, and I, I can even quote it, it says, even the appearance of a conflict of interest can damage the trust in a relationship with the research community that the research community depends on. So here we've got a table of scientists who are all very well well respected and uh, would never do anything unethical, uh, these are really top dogs Dr. Fissman, everyone at the table are really top dogs. but what Ford has to do now is rebuild trust in that table. Should Fistman be at the table absolutely he's uh, perf- he, you know he's got a lot of good ideas and a lot of experience to bring to the table. But Ford has to reassure the public, who doesn't understand all of these things, that it's important to have people, uh, to have him at the table. So I I, I think some people looked at this as an attack on Fisman. I think the fact that uh, Dr. Steny Brown has uh, kept him at the table and that Ford hasn't released him from the table shows that they actually do value his opinion. So I, I think that we have to... Or Christian
1: uh, Freeland's they value. <laughs> is that I,
4: so? I, I, th- I think Chrystia Freeland is very kind of her to do that. But I think that uh, we, we do have to also remember that there's another party at play, and that's the general public. And what we are all doing is for the general public. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's. Um, I think part of it is, uh, you, you know, doctors as a group are not uh necessarily used to being in in the spotlight to this extent.
4: We're terrible at it.
1: <laughs> we're, we're some of you the are, theater. and some of you are pretty darn good at it, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um uh uh Dr. Dionandon um have you noticed any kind of, I mean, it was I think yesterday or Tuesday that the, the CMA put out that letter. Have you, have you noticed any impact from it?
3: Uh, not really. No, I'm not a physician. I'm a PhD scientist. Yeah. I'm not deeply in the medical world, so I wouldn't be privy to that. But I do want to say that the public has to recognize that there aren't any incentives, really, for physicians or scientists to be involved in this public commentary game, or even advising the government, as they do on the science tables, other than personal prestige. There seems to be this narrative that we're paid <laughs> to grant money. We, are, we get rich from advocating for vaccines. We get rich somehow from for being uh, pro-economic restrictions to control the pandemic. None of that is true. In fact, if anything, we're highly disincentivized from doing this. I would get my full salary if I just shut my mouth and stay at home and play with my baby and did my work. But um, we do this because we want to serve the public good. And the public pays my salary, and I feel it is ethically incumbent upon me to give something back in the form of public education. It's strange, though, that these these new roles are being clouded by certain agents in society. And I have to suspect there's some organized disinformation campaigns going on. If I look at the attacks we see on Twitter. They seem to use the same language, uh, come from the same you know uh, places. If I do a media interview, I get a barrage of, of hate mail all using the same language, pointing to the same elements. So it looks a little bit organized. I start to wonder, are there elements in our society that are uh, organizing against public health voices? Yeah.
4: Just 100% agree. There are. And it's scary. Uh, they, they tend to repeat the same message. Uh, they have the same lines of attacks. And uh, just to be aware, they do have... Uh, this is a conspiracy. There are Whole chat rooms dedicated to anti-vaccine, to pro-hydroxychloroquine, to all sorts of things. But, you know, it, 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 there are communities built around this, uh, and uh, so what you're perceiving is not uh, is not conspiracy. It's unfortunately the truth, and it becomes very, very difficult. To fight against these uh, scientific mistruths uh, when people have so much invested in it, when it becomes almost their social life, uh, it, it becomes very difficult to uh, shake people from these uh, ill-conceived notions.
1: Okay, to wrap things up, I'm going to turn to an actual question of substance. We've just received some more bad news about the vaccine rollout. Uh, we're getting uh, fewer doses by the end of the quarter than the prime minister assured us the other day. Half a million fewer doses by the end of March. Uh, we've had new accounting that says, really? Um, This our population is not going to be vaccinated by the end of September, try the middle of 2022. Uh, Dr. Dionandon, what do you make of that?
3: Deeply disappointing, and for a number of reasons, obviously for epidemiological and medical reasons, but also because I worry about public compliance and reaction. I don't know how much more a population can handle the mitigation tools to put into place. What I'm hoping is that this uh, spurs our leaders to do additional negotiations get access to different formulations of vaccine. Because at a global level, we can actually accelerate production of a variety of formulations. So I'm so optimistic that that solution can still be found.
1: Okay. And uh, Dr. Jacobs, your view of that?
3: Oh, this is
4: a very, very... Dangerous situation for Canadians. We've got uh, new variants which are highly contagious. It's uh, crushing our economy. Uh, it's filling our hospitals. This is something that required that required uh, you know all of our attention from uh, right from the beginning. There is a way out of it. The way out of it is uh, local production. Do have vaccine production capacity in Canada. We've always had it. We still do. So it's a matter of negotiating the proper contracts uh, and retooling some of our factories and just getting going. We we cannot wait until mid 2022 to vaccinate the population, this should be a national emergency. We need to get right on top of this. And we can do it, but we just need the political
3: will to do it.
1: Okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to uh, leave you with <clears throat> a hopeful for some but, but disappointing note. Uh, my nephew and his partner are studying in Israel. They both got their vaccinations two days ago. They're not citizens. They are 25 and 27. There you go.
4: And that's the way it should be. And that's the way it should be across the globe. We need to emulate success.
1: Okay. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. David Jacobs and Dr. Ray Dionandon. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, do you live in a condo or an apartment? Uh, How is it getting in and out? Do other people respect the rules to wear a mask in the public places? A lot of people don't. And uh, there's going to be some enforcement, apparently. We'll get down on that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. How many of you live in condos or apartments? For many people, just getting on the elevator is a trip full of anxiety because some people do not respect the rules about masking. The City of Toronto has been getting hundreds of complaints from more than 260 buildings about condo residents not following those mask-wearing bylaws in the common areas. And uh, they say they're going to enforce or move to enforce the law. But what exactly can they do? Let me give you the numbers. I'd like to hear about your experiences. Uh, Do you live in an apartment or a condo? Is is everybody... uh, on board with the rules or do you feel unsafe i know uh, i have friends who basically say they they don't leave their apartment uh, as much as they would like to because they find the whole thing a little uh, as we said anxiety making 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866 seven forty four seven forty. And right now we're going to Carlton Grant, Executive Director of Municipal Licensing and Standards at the City of Toronto. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. No
6: problem, Libby. How are you?
1: Fine. Thank you. So uh most of these complaints are coming into three one one. What is the essence of most of the complaints?
6: Yeah, so since August 5th, over the last six months, the the city through our 3-on-1 channels have received uh, just under 2,000 complaints. So 1,950 complaints about um, people not wearing masks or about there being no signage or no policy in that particular building for mask wearing. So we did an analysis of that, and of those complaints, we found that 263 of those locations had three or more complaints. So we've sent them all educational letters on reminding them uh, what they're required to do as far as post-signage, the, the importance of wearing a mask. We drilled down even further to see which had more than 10 complaints, and we found 12 locations. And those are the ones where we're going to go visit in person, talk to the property manager, talk to the landlord, see what's happening in that building, and ensure that they have the, uh, the appropriate signage and the appropriate policy in place.
1: Uh, I believe that uh, a lot of those buildings are the city place buildings that are, are uh, you know, down on Front Street.
3: Um, I don't, uh, not
6: necessarily. The the There's a number of apartment buildings. That, so there's the other piece to, to clarify is that about 75% of the complaints were about rental apartment buildings and 25% of the complaints were related to condominiums. So that's roughly a, you know, 1,500 apartment buildings and 500 condos. So that is still a... A, uh, a large number and it is uh, <clears throat> something that we'll be working on we do have a direct relationship with the landlords and property managers of rental apartment buildings as we have a rent safe to program which requires all of them to register with us and have a number of different uh cleaning plans security plans etc so we have a direct relationship with them and we're working closely with them and the Greater Toronto Apartment Association to get the word out that it's important that these policies be in place, that there's appropriate signage. And then it's, it's really incumbent upon the residents of these buildings to to wear a mask when you're in common areas.
1: Do you have uh, any idea why so many more of these complaints would be from apartments rather than condos? Is it, you know, because if people own their places, they're, they're a little more likely to comply? Is there anything like that?
6: Uh, it's hard to say. I can't quantify that, that, it, you know, rental or ownership, uh, people behave differently. Um, again, it's just, it's there are a number of people, uh, almost half of our city lives in, uh, in uh, vertical communities and apartment buildings and condominiums. So it's just really critical that everyone, and you use the word respect in your in your opening remarks, and everyone needs to respect uh, the rules and respect everyone's um, right to, to, to stay healthy.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so what exactly can you do? I mean, you said you'll visit and you'll talk to the mm-hmm. property managers. That you know that, that doesn't sound like enforcement to me.
6: Well, the, the part of the challenge is there is no offense for not wearing a mask. So um, that's a big part of the problem, a big part of the issue. <laughs> the, while it's, the onus is on the resident to wear a mask, the onus from a um, responsibility is on the property manager and the landlord And failure to uh, have signage, have a policy, Um, if we continue to see this behavior, we would fine the operators of these buildings um, a a fine of $1,000. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, from the point of view of of somebody who is worried about leaving the apartment, I mean, you know... um, Calling 311, if the action you get is uh, six months later, you'll send a letter. I mean, I would assume there are a lot of people who just didn't bother to call.
6: Uh, I, would, uh, I would just note that, uh, again, our department, um, we have, uh, again, a number of bylaw officers. We've never been resourced to be immediate responders to receive a call from an apartment building and to be out there in, in short order. We have to take a look at our data. And our, our work has to be data driven, and that's why we're focusing on those with the highest number of complaints.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, do you see this as a, a big problem or a, an an ongoing problem or, or what?
6: Um, I think it's a it's you know it's been steady. If we're you know we're looking at three hundred and twenty five complaints a month um, again, and we have thirty five hundred apartment buildings, so again, those aren't you know staggering numbers. Um, nonetheless, I think it's important that. Uh, property owners and landlords take the responsibilities that they're required to do. And it's also, again, the, the, it's incumbent upon us as residents in these apartment buildings and condominiums to, uh, to wear masks, uh, when you're in common areas, elevators, lobbies, laundry rooms.
1: Okay, I mean, my, my observation is, I think by now, everybody in the city has heard or uh, knows that basically, you're being told to wear a mask, certainly in any kind of indoor space. And I mean, I would think that people who aren't doing it are willfully not doing it, not because they don't know
6: yeah i mean we are you're right we're you know we're 10 months into this uh 6 months into wearing a mask um wearing masks we've had a number of um protests over the past uh number of months as well anti mask groups but it's it's it, it is unfortunate and people really need to uh to wear face coverings and to wear a mask and to wear them appropriately particularly when you're in common areas again with uh, large numbers of people living in um in the same building
1: Okay, anything else that you would like to leave us with?
6: Uh, No, I just think it's just for people to get informed, understand the rules, and and to follow them. Uh, I think if we're going to, you know, flatten this curve, it's really uh, incumbent upon us all to do what we can, and wearing a mask is a big part of that.
1: Okay. Carlton Grant, thank you so much for being with us.
6: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Okay, now let's bring in Natalia Polis, who is a lawyer at Lash Condo Law. Hi, Natalia. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So um, the, the city has been saying they're going to enforce these bylaws. Do they actually have the power to enforce anything at a condo building?
7: So in our experience, we haven't had that many bylaw officers actually attend our client's property. So we haven't seen that many 311 calls actually yield any positive results, to be honest. Um, however, on that end, the corporations themselves have the power to enforce this outside of calling 311 and contacting the city. So that's really important for uh, residents who are concerned about individuals not wearing masks to understand.
1: Uh, so when you say they have the power to enforce it, wh- what can they do? So at this point, every condo
7: in Toronto should have adopted a mask policy within the corporations themselves and distributed to the residents. So if an individual is not wearing a mask, there's certain enforcement steps, starting with, for instance, verbal warnings to residents who are not wearing masks, which then could end up going to the management, sending a legal uh, an enforcement letter. And then if this resident continues to not comply, it'll eventually go to legal. And we have the capacity of sending an enforcement letter and possibly charging back the costs of that letter to the residents who aren't complying and who aren't wearing their
1: masks. Uh, Yeah, uh, but can you stop them from using the common areas?
7: You, You can't
1: stop them from using
7: the common areas. You can try to get them to wear a mask. Oftentimes we see individuals claiming that they're somehow exempt from wearing a mask on the common areas and continue not doing so. Unfortunately, the way that the bylaw is read at this point, the condo doesn't really have the authority to request medical documents to substantiate their claims. But a blanket prohibition from using the common elements probably wouldn't be the best route to go.
1: Well, frankly, it doesn't sound like much of a deterrent to say, uh, if you keep on doing this, maybe uh, you'll get a lawyer's letter.
7: So it actually has been a deterrent in some circumstances, because you have been an individual getting a lawyer's letter and having a $500 cost associated that they have to pay off. So just that financial burden that an owner or resident potentially can get
1: is a deterrent in some
7: circumstances.
1: Do you have any idea uh, where the problem is? Is it younger people? Is it uh, in certain part of town? Is is there anything that you can say about the source of uh, the problem?
7: So I don't have any like quantitative data about the areas of Toronto or certain demographics that are opposing wearing masks, but it's certainly an issue in a lot of condo corporations. Um, we've sent numerous enforcement letters at this time to various of our clients, owners and residents about this behavior. But whether it's an elderly person or a young person or what part of city, we don't really have any data on that.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you have any data? A lot of uh, condos are actually rented out. Uh, mm-hmm. Would it be more of a problem with people who are living in the units they own or people who are renting units owned by others? I don't
7: think that would be very much a difference between an owner or a renter um it just happens whether you own the unit you don't you rent the unit you have
1: those individuals that are just not willing to comply and won't wear their masks and do, can you foresee if the city kind of beefed up the law would they have more recourse um i would say so If there was a better way of enforcing it through the
7: city and calling 311 and actually getting bylaw officers to come and issue fines. I think that would be helpful. I know that the city council is supposed to meet to develop some sort of strategy for enforcement in multi residential buildings. Um, so hopefully they come up with some kind of guideline for condos to enforce against persons not wearing masks or themselves going in and enforce um, on the property.
1: Are, are owners of condos in favor of that? I would think that would be something they would not want.
7: Well, you have the owners who are concerned about individuals not wearing masks in the common elements. So those owners, I would perceive being in favor of this kind of thing. Whereas the, obviously the residents who refuse to wear masks probably be not happy
1: with this sort of strategy. Are Would the owners at all be... Liable. I mean, if there's a problem at a certain building, and if somebody gets sick, I mean, is is there any situation under which they could sue?
7: Um. So, in like in like the, from the condo corporation's perspective, if an owner continues to not wear their mask, and we sent letters out from legal and whatnot, then the corporation could potentially go to court under Section 117 of the Condo Act. Um, and get an order prohibiting them from using the common elements if they do not wear their masks. So that is an option for condos to uh, explore. But when it comes to the condo being liable for any individuals who aren't wearing masks, um, we're not quite sure what would happen there. But as the occupier of the common elements, the condo, if they're not taking proactive steps to ensure owners and residents are wearing masks, they could potentially see some sort of fine.
1: Mm-hmm. But have there has there be any, been anything like that? Um, there have been a case about renovations
7: in condo corporations where a condo enacted a policy to prohibit renovating uh, units during COVID. And the so condo was successful in that case. When it comes to masks at this point, I don't believe there's any case law
1: uh, to that effect. Okay, uh, so what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, first and
7: foremost, residents should comply with not only the City of Toronto masking bylaw, but also with their own corporations' um, masking policies. And any residents who see others not wearing masks in the common elements should immediately notify property management so they could try to take these enforcement steps against these Residents and individuals in the common elements, and hopefully the enforcement steps eventually pay off, and these individuals begin complying. But the first step for all residents who are concerned about this sort of behavior, contact property management.
1: Do you think there's any use to contacting three one
7: one? I mean, it doesn't hurt, but in a condo setting, I think your
1: best bet would go through contacting management first. Okay, Natasha Polis, lawyer at Lash Condo Law. Thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Well... Just a reminder, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and I want to get to some things that we did not get to today. Uh, We've seen more detail on the complaints against the former Governor General, Julie Payette. I'd like to get your take on that. We were already discussing it last Free For All Friday, but, uh, you know, there's more facts out right now. Also, we've never talked about that incredible story out of BC about this couple, rich millionaire couple that chartered a plane and lied in order to get a vaccine uh, in a remote Indigenous community when it was not their turn. I mean, it's just stunning. Absolutely stunning. Uh, The guy lost his job as the CEO of a gaming corporation the next day. Uh, That seems fair, but uh, I mean, what are some people thinking? It is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I'd like to know what you're thinking. That's coming up tomorrow on Free For All Friday. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.